What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. Stocks are higher today, erasing nearly this week's Dow and S&P losses. But with the two-year yield, the two-year Treasury yield at 4.4%, are short-term bonds the better bet? We'll discuss the new alternatives to stocks. Plus, Goldman warning that China's earlier-than-expected reopening could actually disrupt the global supply chain further. We'll dig into the uh, potential global economic fallout and when the recovery could actually take hold. Plus, it was the worst year for IPOs in more than three decades. And we'll look at why 2023 probably won't be much better. But first, we begin with this rally. Let's get more from Bob Bassani down at the New York Stock Exchange. Bob? And hello, Kelly. Uh, Today, it's time to play Let's Turn All of the Trends Upside down. So take a look at the major indexes. Uh, what has been the big uh, leader uh, all month in terms of the major indices or outperforming? Uh, it's been the Dow Industrials. Uh, what's up today but underperforming? It's the Dow Industrials. What's been the big laggard all month at the major indices? It's the NASDAQ. What's the big leader today? It's the NASDAQ. By the way, 38.53 on the S&P, that'd be the highest close uh, in two weeks since the middle of December. So again, keeping with the theme, Turn the market upside down. What has uh, hit new lows? What major cap, uh, big cap stocks have hit new lows this week? Tesla, Disney, Apple, PayPal, Ford. What's leading the S&P 500 today on the upside? Tesla, Disney, Apple, PayPal, Ford. Don't you like it when this happens? Herd mentality is not dead on Wall Street. Also, let's flip that around. What has been the leadership groups all throughout the month? Largely, pharmaceutical stocks like Merck hitting new highs and consumer staple stocks like Campbell's, Kellogg, Hershey have all outperformed. What is underperforming today? Campbell's, Kellogg's, Hershey and Merck. Again, herd mentality on Wall Street. A lot of people say the the Santa Claus rally is dead. I'm here to tell you, as of now, the Santa Claus rally is very much alive. Remember, the Santa Claus rally is the last five trading days of the year and the first two of the new year. It's seven days. We're four days into it. Average gain is 1.3%. So what matters is what happens on January 4th at the close. You have to close above 38.22. That was the Thursday close. Look at that. We're well above 38.22 right now. In fact, you add 1% or so on that, you get close to 38.60. We're essentially at the Santa Claus rally. So the bottom line here is it is very much alive. And by the way, Kelly, we are now a little bit below 20% decline in the S&P, and that's kind of like a line a lot of people are talking about. Very rarely do you have down 20% years. We're right on the cusp wow. of that one. All right. Kelly? Bob, actually, stay right there with us. Our next guest says he's bracing for 6% interest rates from the Fed next year, and that it may be decades before we see zero interest rates again. So how do you invest? Let's welcome in Ryan Bellinger. He's managing principal at Claro Advisors, a wealth management firm. And Ryan, this is really about this whole idea that there is an alternative to stocks. And, uh, you know, a number of major investment people tell us, hey, short-term Treasury bonds look pretty good here. That number keeps growing. Yeah, certainly nice to be with you again. It's a, uh, you know, it's been a really tough year, worst year for bonds on record, uh, as Bob just mentioned, uh, down 20% or so on the S&P 500. That's the worst since 2008. 
So I think everyone's just really looking forward to getting out of 2022 and uh, seeing what 2023 might might bring for the investors. Right. But I I think you're even more hawkish than some of the hawks here. I mean, very few people think the Fed's taking the the Fed funds rate all the way up to 6%. Why do you think they will do that? Yeah, I think that some of this inflation is a lot stickier than than people might think. Uh, Historically, they've got to bring their Fed funds rate above where the CPI is going to be living. And so if we get a couple of bad reads in, in the first couple of months, uh, inflation's a little bit more sticky than they think. I mean, they've been uh, determined to uh, crush the, the demand side of this economy. So I think they would have to bring rates up uh, a little bit higher than people think, not drastically higher. We've already come a long way. Uh, but I think the, the, the bigger prognosis is that the rates will be higher for much longer than people think. Yeah. And so we're going to hang out in an environment with rates at four and a half, five percent, uh, for potentially years, because I don't think the Fed wants to repeat the 1970s mistake of lowering rates too early and then seeing inflation spike back up again. Well, and if you're, listen, you're a wealth management firm. Your clients are trying to protect, if not grow their wealth. If you're thinking as hawkish as you are about the Fed crushing demand and raising rates and all the rest of it, where are you putting client money? I can't imagine it's in the stock market. Well, we, you know, we're long-term investors, Kelly. So we are definitely, we have an allocation to stocks. Uh, you know, we, we are not mar- market timers. And so, you know, maybe we take our stock allocations down and we get more defensive. We, we uh, invest in dividend-paying companies and we, we're, we are kind of avoiding the no, uh, no growth, no profitability companies. But, uh, you know, to your earlier point, treasuries at 4.5%, those look pretty good. You know, I think the biggest mistake investors are making right now is they've got tons of cash sitting in bank accounts that, that's yielding a quarter of a percent. I mean, they're leaving so much money on the sidelines by not putting their money in some treasuries or, or more of a high yielding money market. I think that's a huge opportunity that some investors could take You know, right now. Sure. Quick last one. I want to bring Bob back in, Ryan. But even 4.4 percent, if you think they're taking the Fed's funds rate to 6 percent, 4.4 doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we'll have to wait and see. I, you know, I'm hopeful that we don't. I mean, I'm an optimist at heart. I just, you know, we're in the business where we need to tell people what they really need to hear, not what they want to hear. Uh, we're fiduciaries, and I think it's prudent for us to recognize that this is a very difficult investing environment. It's unprecedented. The Fed has never had to take inflation down and soak up 10 million jobs uh, from an economy. So, you know, we are uncharted here, and I think it's best to protect your capital. And 2023 might end up being a really good investing opportunity for a lot of people. But if that's true, I think we're going to see some pain before then. Well, hang on, guys, one second. Just we had another auction. This time it was seven years. Even worse, it sounds like, than the five-year auction yesterday. Let's bring in Rick Santelli real quick. He's got the results. Rick, how'd it go? Yes, this was not the best of breed. This was the worst of breed. I gave the auction a D plus, dog plus, 35 billion, seven years, Kelly. The yield at the Dutch auction, 3.921. The problem was that was about a basis point higher than when issued market, uh, higher yield, lower price. When you're selling, you want higher prices, not lower prices. Uh, The metrics were all a bit below average. The one that caught my eye was uh, the dealers took about 15.8 for 13 percent. So D plus it's last of 120 billion of Treasury supply. Bob Pisani, what do you say about this idea that there is an alternative now to stocks and what are people saying about it? 
There is, and I'll make this very simple. When the risk-free rate of return is 4%, you have to have well above 4% to own stocks to justify that. So let's just say the equity risk premium is 3%, 4%. That means you've got to have expect a roughly 8% return next year to justify the risk of owning stocks over bonds. A lot of people uh, don't think that's necessarily going to happen. Long-term, Clearly, the market generally tends to reverse after 20% down years. That doesn't happen very often. The following year, most of the time, you're made whole. But this may be one of those exceptional circumstances where the combination of the Russian invasion, the COVID fallout, and the Fed higher for longer may create an extraordinary situation. Very difficult to figure out 2023. Yeah, well said. Guys, thank you all. We'll leave it there. Bob Bassani, Ryan Bellager, and our Rick Santelli. Now, meantime, companies that took on trillions of dollars of debt to make it through the pandemic will be racing to refi that debt in the new year and will have to do so facing both higher rates and recession worries. Steve Leisman here with the details. Steve? Kelly, good afternoon. Debt makes downturns worse, and Wall Street is keeping a close eye on corporate debt and what the Fed does next year with the 2008 financial crisis fresh in mind. So there is a positive here to an extent. So-called rollover risk, the amount of debt coming due next year, is a relatively tame $1 trillion in investment grade and high-yield paper that needs to be refinanced, about 10% of the $10 trillion corporate bond market. The bigger problems you can see, 24 goes up by 30%, and especially then in 25 and 26. John Giordino, Giordano, sorry, head of credit research at Cannon Fitzgerald, tells me high-yield and investment grade are in decent shape, but that doesn't mean there won't be pockets of pain. We'll be paying a lot of attention on how companies manage earnings and cash flow. That's because rollover risk is only one of the concerns. Depending on the depth of any potential downturn, earnings could come under pressure. Issuers have to pay both higher rates and then a premium on top of that because of default concerns. There's already a hefty default premium that's built into rates. Yields on the lowest rated junk bonds, they've nearly doubled from 8% to above 15%. Investment grade yields, they've more than doubled from just below 2% to above 5% now on average. Daniel Iveson, Chief Investment Officer at PIMCO, tells me when you enter recession, you never know if it's mild or not, and you gotta be really cautious about the most economically sensitive sectors of the market. So PIMCO prefers these less sensitive uh, sectors to uh, th that are cyclical, uh, less cyclical, that is, uh, to downturns. Utilities, wireless towers, aerospace, food and restaurants, some technology, but they mention specifically mission-critical software. The optimistic scenario, the Fed begins to cut rates before 2024 when the cliff of rollovers comes due. The current high level of rates suggests the street is preparing for a worst-case outcome. And if your last guest is right, uh, Kelly, a 6% Fed rate, there's going to be blood on the streets. Yeah, can you imagine? So the other interesting thing about this, Steve, as we're all talking about how there's an alternative to stocks, you're basically highlighting a concern here. You know, you go into corporate debt, you better be pretty sure that they're going to be able to meet all these obligations. I think that's right. You know, Kelly, one way to think about it is there is no, the only risk you have is the uncompensated risk that you take. <laughs> if you go out and you buy a junk bond, you know, and, and you're going to get 15%, well, you have to ask yourself, are you compensated for that risk? If you go buy a corporate bond and you're going to pay, you're going to get back uh, 5, 6, 7, 8%, ask yourself if you're getting paid for that risk. Um, there is one little bit of potential silver lining that if you'll squint with me, Kelly, we can maybe see it. With these high rates right now, right, there's not a lot of issuance coming. So the idea is that you're going to have less paper being issued, 
So with less supply, you might have tighter spreads and you might end up having a little bit extra on your returns because of that lower supply. Really interesting point. It's not just the current factors, but what's you know what more debt they might or might not take on here uh, as people think right. about going in. Steve, thanks. We always appreciate it. Great reporting. Pleasure. Steve Leisman. Coming up 2022, a year to forget for the IPO market. But will 2023 be any different? We'll look at the deals and delistings that could be on the way. But first, will the fallout from China's latest COVID outbreak put its economy and relationship with the U.S. under a new strain? One of the foremost experts on China joins me next. And as we head to break, here's another look at the markets. Dow's rally is now 370 points to the upside. Look at the Nasdaq up 2.5%, trying to preserve that Santa Claus rally. Like Bapasani said, 382 on the 10-year. The exchange is back after this. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange. China ripping off the Band-Aid after nearly three years of a zero COVID policy. And Goldman Sachs is warning the reopening is maybe too fast. It was at least much faster than people expected. And Goldman says will cause a short-term strain on the workforce and the supply chain. So what kind of global impact will it have? Inflationary? Deflationary? And can the economy handle it? Joining me now is Nicholas Lardy, senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Nicholas, it's great to see you. What do you think is going on here? Well, Kelly, I, I agree they, they opened too fast. I think the zero COVID strategy could have been a good short run strategy to buy time to get a vaccination program, uh, you know, covering more than a billion people uh, to build up their hospital system so they could deal with infections. Uh, but they stayed with zero COVID way too long and they didn't take advantage of that period to do the vaccinations and build up their medical system. So they're in a very, very difficult position now with massive numbers of cases, obviously mortality going uh, very well uh, up, and obviously there'll be negative effects on the workforce. Yeah. I think a, a weak recovery um, in 2023. So in the Goldman note, they say that China is likely to see weaker growth momentum because of the front-loaded exit wave, temporary labor shortage, increased supply chain disruptions, do you agree with all of that? And is it going to be an effect that we feel here as well? I, I do largely agree, but I would put much more focus on, on household consumption. Household consumption has been very weak this year, largely because of massive lockdowns. People couldn't leave their houses. They couldn't go on vacation. They couldn't go to the movies, uh, et cetera. And now they don't want to leave their houses because they're afraid they're going to get the disease. So I think consumer spending will continue to be very, very weak, and that will be a problem. I think that'll be a bigger problem than the disruptions of the labor force having an adverse impact. Wow. 
weak production. Chinese consumer then being one of your main concerns. And again, for investors who always say, hey, I always bet on the Chinese consumer, on Chinese consumption. I'm betting on them ordering things online and all these Internet plays. I mean, maybe that's a reason to think twice. Or maybe, again, they'll have to turn to the Internet to kind of fill in this gap a little bit if they're waylaid by COVID. How long do you think this lasts? An economy that maybe grew 2.5% this year, no matter what they say, what kind of growth do you think we're talking about for 2023 now that they're pursuing this version of reopening? Well, it's very difficult. If the COVID surge is restricted to the first quarter or maybe the first half, they could still get, you know, three, four percent growth in 2023. But if it goes on much longer, and especially if new variants emerge, uh, you know, then we could be looking at something in the two to three percent range. Which would be a, a huge disappointment. There are a lot of things from global economies to uh, stock markets, bond yields, uh, exposed stocks that are rallying on excitement over this reopening. Nicholas, what would you say to those investors? Do you think that's correct, that this will be a big year in terms of an economic boost coming from China? Or are we getting our hopes up too much? Well, I, I would be a little bit on the skeptical side. Yes, some stocks have surged uh, largely because of policy changes with respect to platform companies. But, you know, long term Chinese stocks have been a very poor investment, substantially underperforming uh, U.S. markets and markets of most other most other countries. So um, they're up a bit now. But over over time, the returns on the on the Chinese market have been down substantially. Yeah, maybe we can show a 10 year chart, for instance, of the Shanghai Composite. It will illustrate what you're talking about. So you're concerned about the Chinese consumer and some weakness there uh, into next year. For those in the U.S. who are wondering about whether this will disrupt global supply chains all over again, affecting all kinds of businesses, consumers and inflation. Do you think we're likely to see that effect? Well, I, I I'm not sure that will happen. China's export growth during the three years of the pandemic has been relatively strong, stronger than most other countries. So they've continued to supply a very large quantity of goods to the international market. And we read about, you know, uh, companies that are having trouble producing in China. But remember, China is a huge country and not every place gets locked down all at once. So China actually was a very strong supplier to the international market over the last three years, even though they had significant uh, shutdowns and, you know, closed downs. So even even if there's some disruption in the labor market, I think China's exports will probably hold up pretty well. They're going to be weaker in any case because the, Europe is going into a recession. The United States might soon be in a recession. So the external demand is likely to be weakening, which could be a more important factor than uh, a slowdown in production in China. Yeah, great point. So we're showing these 10-year stock charts that show the Hang Seng's down during that period. The Shanghai Composites, you know, been 5x outperformed by the S&P 500. The large cap Chinese stocks are also negative during that period of time. At, at what point does it become a better place uh, for investors? And what does this all say to you about the hold that President Xi has on the economy? Well, I think we'll have to wait and see. Hopefully we'll see some resumption of a basic economic reform, which has been mostly on hold or in retreat the last few years. Uh, I think that would tend to give a, a boost to economic growth medium term, uh, and that would improve the performance of Chinese companies and make China a more attractive uh, investment uh, option. All right. Nicholas, thanks for your time today, as always. Great to check in with you. Thank you, Kelly. Nicholas Lardy with the Peterson Institute.
Now, don't miss tonight's special taking stock. It is focused on China in 2023. A closer look at the fallout from COVID, the landscape for the year ahead that we were just discussing. Uh, Heyman Capital CIO and outspoken China critic Kyle Bass will be part of this special tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern. Still ahead, Tesla rallying despite the street's top analyst slashing his price target by 25%. We'll tell you why he's calling 2023 a reset year for the EV market. Plus, the airlines are under pressure from Washington after canceling thousands of flights since last week. Are the struggles a warning sign that capacity can't keep up with demand? We'll explore. And as we head to break, take a look at the Dow heat map. Only two stocks are in the red today, and they're uh, Boeing and Merck, Disney, Salesforce, and Apple, which Apple has been having such a tough stretch lately today, leading the Dow higher. The exchange is back after this. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Just going to leave it unbuttoned this time. Uh, markets, uh, Dow is seeing a pretty nice rally today. It was up 416 at the highs. We're up 365 points right now, but the Nasdaq is leading the way with a 2.5% gain. Let's talk about some of the movers as we ponder the Santa Claus rally. The streaming names catching a bid today. This is, these have had a tough year, but look at Warner Brothers Discovery up 7%. Netflix up nearly 5% to 290. Got a double upgrade from sell to buy from CFRA, and Paramount is among the top S&P performers as well. Disney, the best stock in the Dow. It's up nearly 4%. Payment and fintech names also outperforming. Bit of a counter trend move here, obviously. Affirm up 7.5% today. Toast and Block up nicely as well. These names still on pace to close out their worst year ever. Affirm and Toast just went public last year. PayPal and Block seeing their second straight year of losses. Still the only two negative years they've had since debuting in 2015. And we gotta check out shares of Apple. Bouncing back from their lowest level since June of 2021. And they're holding on to that $2 trillion mark and market cap. Still below below 130 pre-pandemic. I think we're around 80, but still a nice 3% gain for those beleaguered shareholders today. Let's get to Frank Holland now for a CNBC News update. Frank. Hey there, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. The Department of Justice is suing Amasource Bergen for failing to report suspicious orders of painkillers that contributed to the opioid crisis. Prosecutors say civil penalties could total billions of dollars. Amerisource Bergen says government lawyers cherry-picked data from five pharmacies out of tens of thousands that it supplies. Brazil's incoming president, De Silva, has chosen someone who has worked to protect the Amazon as his environmental environment minister. Marina Silva is returning to the post that she held from 2003 to 2010. During that time, she set up programs that sharply curtailed deforestation, but also drew sharp criticism from many agricultural businesses seeking to expand into the Amazon. And across America, nearly a thousand small towns and cities are losing their designation as urban areas starting today. The Census Bureau is reclassifying them as part of rural America. About three and a half million people are affected. The change matters because rural and urban areas often qualify for different kinds of federal funding. That's the very latest. Kelly. All right, Frank, thank you. Coming up, the Renaissance IPO ETF trading near its lowest level since the start of the pandemic. We'll look at the deals and the delistings that could be in store for next year. And can you guess how many IPOs raised a billion dollars this year? Tweet me your guesses at Kelly CNBC, and we'll tell you after this quick break. Welcome back to The Exchange. 2022 was a grim one for the IPO market. Check out these ugly stats. Not only did new deals struggle to get out the door, with proceeds down 94% from the previous year, according to Ernst & Young, 
but no deal raised more than a billion dollars. So the answer to that question was zero. Even for the deals that got done, the Wall Street Journal estimates one in four IPOs could end up being delisted. Joining me now to discuss is the brave man, Duncan Davidson, partner at Bullpen Capital. You're a straight shooter, Duncan. It's great to see you again. How bad is it out there? Well, it's as bad as I've seen since 2001. So I I don't think they're coming back quickly. A few may test the waters, but I wouldn't expect IPOs to really come back in the tech space till the end of the year. So what does a company like Instacart do if they think the, you know, the door is slammed shut now? Well, they could keep on trying to drop price. They've gone from 40 billion down to 10. They could probably try three to four, but they're, they're running into a psychological problem, which is if 2022 taught us anything, it's that unicorns really are mythical. So if they want to drop to three or four, 90% cut, they probably still believe they were really worth 20, 30, 40 billion, and they're not going to do it. So I don't think they'll drop it enough to make this attractive to the sell side, to the IPO bankers. Sure, but I'm thinking about it more from, you know, does this company try to sell itself? What are the, don't you run into an employee problem at some point? They're emblematic of something that is the case across the tech landscape right now, which is all these companies that started up, promised stock options, you know, all the rest of it, are now facing a reckoning of there may not be any exits for a couple more years. Well, we face that in venture capital, (laughs) but we're willing to wait it out and get the right value. From the company itself, obviously, you focus on business, raise cash, and make sure you have a real business. For the employees, you do what Instacart's been doing. They're doing 409As, which have dropped their valuation down to $10 billion, and they can then go through a process to reprice all the options. Now, they may have to do it another time to keep people involved and incentivized, but we'll see. So they will find, as you say, and, and we've heard from people saying for these companies, they're being told, make sure you have a couple years of liquidity um, at your fingertips because you might need that in order to keep going cash. Uh, you can't necessarily look to keep raising from the outside. For the ones that did get through the door and are facing a delisting, companies like Oatly, the, the level we're looking at here is about $2 a share. I was just looking at uh, Compass, the real estate company the other day. They're, they're about at that level. What happens if they get delisted? Well, not much. That's it's not much worse than just having the stock drop down to little penny stock levels. After the dot com thing, I had two companies I was involved with that went through this. One of them was the first company I started, Covad. It went public in '98. It was worth nine billion in 2000, but it had 1.5 billion of debt, hmm. and it collapsed. They got delisted, and they didn't worry about it. They focused on the business. And eventually, they got rolled up by a PE firm, and they survived as a business. I also was, when I joined a venture fund, I was put on the board of a company called DSLNet, which is kind of a junior cousin to COVID. And when I first came to the first board meeting, I was shocked. They were all trying to get relisted and avoid delisting. Do you remember the Amex, the American Exchange? They were trying to go from the NASDAQ to the Amex. Well, um, they were fiddling while cash burned, and they went out of they went out of business. So just don't worry about the delisting. You could try a reverse stock split, but if you get the delisting notice, it's really too late. You could look at Embark. Embark tried this last August, September, and the stock went up for a bit, but it fell back down again, and they're around two dollars. So I don't think that works either. Just focus on the business. And private equity, you mentioned in the past. I mean, is this an opportunity in a landscape where they can end up? And I, I doubt how quickly are they going to move? Does anyone want to move it right now? Or you think they're going to wait many, many months time for all the dust to settle here? 
I think we're going to see a lot of bargain basement snarfing up of companies this year by the PE side. Uh, they're going to wait a little bit, but they probably won't wait the whole year. So you're going to start seeing that increase in activity mid-year to the end of the year. Uh, and, you know, these companies are going to be bought at such a low price, the VCs are going to shrug. But at least the business survives, the employees survive, and who knows, it may come back to be something special. Sure, although it's probably going to be, I don't know, five or ten years before we know uh, if that's the case. So t- talk to me a little bit. We have, we're going to talk next hour about San Francisco and just what a tough sort of situation that city is facing, the rise of work from home, the loss of commercial tenants. Obviously, so much of these uh, new companies and this activity was focused in that region. What are the knockout effects from all of this? You went through the last kind of winter after the collapse of dot-com. What kind of period are we talking about now? Well, if you go back to the NASDAQ drop from the peak in 2000 to when it bottomed, it was about 30 months, 31 months. I think it really didn't start coming back for three years. If we go back and look at the peak of the NASDAQ this time, it was November last year, so we may have two years to go. What does it do for San Francisco? Well, it's interesting. It, the Bay Area is pretty resilient. I know people all bailed out to Florida and Austin, but I don't think those places are going to survive as well during this winter as the tech center will. So I think coming out of this, the tech center is going to be still strong and really the West. So you think Florida, Austin, the places where talent went to escape San Francisco will not make it out as well as San Francisco itself here? Why? The data already shows that. The data just shows that uh, we're sort of bouncing back a bit. And, you know, people go there expecting certain things, but they're a much smaller cluster of density than we are for these type of companies. So in the downturn like this, the weak don't survive. And so the, the pe- people in sort of the weaker area is going to have more problems than they realize. So you think they're going to end up uh, crawling back desperately saying, you know, San Francisco? <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but I, I, I do think there's, this, this area is going to bounce back first and it'll bounce back pretty strongly in about two years. So final comment, if you're likening this to what we went through in the early 2000s, that was a three-year period of decline for the Nasdaq. Let's say we're through year one. What is your advice for investors who might be watching, who maybe lost a bunch of money on some of these IPOs and are trying to figure out, do they double down now? Do they just move to the sidelines? Should they just never try to trade stocks again? Well, there was a whole different sort of model after 2000, where you sort of looked forward, not back. You had two choices. One choice is to go to the fallen, really good companies, companies that are probably profitable. Some of the ones you listed are companies that are very solid companies. You might want to play their IPO or might want to wait for them to come out and see if it dips and then buy the dip, because these companies are real companies. But otherwise, what you do is you look forward. What is the next generation of tech that's about to come out? Let's see if I can play those companies. But you don't go in the middle. By the middle, I mean the highly speculative companies that were glorious during the pandemic. Don't go there. That's the part of the market that you want to stay away from. This is great. Okay, so final question. If I think that, you know, the likes of chat GPT are the future, what do I do as an investor? And, And are you getting similar questions or thinking about that yourself right now? Well, first of all, uh, you short Google because it's a big threat to them. They're already trying to take steps. No, I think what you're seeing is that AI is now becoming real, but not in the way people think. It's not some kind of Terminator. It's not some kind of super intelligence. It's a tool. We see AI being added to a lot of SaaS companies and marketplaces that are automating business processes. So one way to think about it is, how do we automate a business process using AI and make some place much more productive than it was before. Uh, this is happening across the supply chain and a lot of businesses. Go there. 
What chat GPD is interesting technology. It's scared a lot of people in the teaching community. You know, you can now just get your essay printed out and it's pretty, pretty well written. Um, I don't think that's where the big threat is. I think the big threat that chat GPT creates is for things like customer service, customer support. Hmm. You can have much more automation in those areas about answers to questions than you could previously. Maybe. And so I would not go into the normal uh, area of those type of companies right now. I'd look for new companies that come in and really automate, super automate, uh, like response to customers complaining with a very polite <laughs> chat GPT system. Sure, maybe they can start with Southwest and uh, be, a, be a template. <laughs> no, I don't think chat GPT can solve their routing <laughs> problem. That's a much deeper problem. <laughs> Duncan, great checking in with you. Thanks for bringing your history and experience to bear on this. We appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. You too. Duncan Davidson with Bullpen. Still ahead, Southwest scrutiny. Lawmakers turning their sights on the company and its cancellation chaos with the White House pressuring the carrier to compensate passengers for incurred costs. But booking holding CEO Glenn Fogel was on Squawk on the Street today, and he issued this warning about increasing those payouts to travelers. In Europe, if you are delayed a certain number of hours for different types of travel, or if your flight is canceled, you are given certain types of compensation. In the U.S., there are no laws that really give that kind of same benefit that you do get in Europe. We want to have a system that does get that kind of compensation. It's going to be more costly. The flight uh, costs will go up to spread those costs around. Welcome back. Southwest has canceled nearly 16,000 flights over the past week. The company says they plan to return to normal operations tomorrow, but have already canceled 39 flights, according to FlightAware. And they're facing increasing scrutiny from Washington. Maria Cantwell, chair of the Senate Commerce Committee, said they'll investigate what went wrong. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg has promised to mount an extraordinary effort to ensure customers are compensated for any incurred costs. Could Southwest meltdown spark new rules for carriers? Maybe something rivaling Europe's passenger compensation model. Joining me now to discuss, CNBC.com Airlines reporter Leslie Josephs. Leslie, welcome. I didn't realize Europe actually had this system. How does it work? Well, they have much a much lower bar, in, essentially, to compensate passengers when things go wrong, when they're delayed. And in the United States, our, our protections are pretty weak. You know, things have to go very wrong, and it ha also has to be the fault of the airline. Weather does not count. Hmm. So it was one of those things. Um, the U.S., however, you are entitled to a cash refund. If the airline does cancel your flight, they might offer you a credit. This is something we saw in the beginning of COVID when they were slashing flights left and right. right. Um, so you are always entitled to get that refund. But when you're trying to go home for Christmas, you probably want to get on your way and see your family. Yeah, although at some point you'll say, hey, at least they can compensate me if I'm out of you know pocket for two or three days and I have to stay in a hotel, how much money uh, could Southwest be talking about in terms of facing payouts here? It is very tough to, I think, calculate it at this point. We don't even know exactly how many passengers were affected. But to give you an idea, they had a similar issue in October 2021. That cost them about $75 million. We're talking a week later since this started. It's also Christmas. Fares were higher. Those are going to be higher fares to refund passengers. Costs of hotels are much higher. And there are just so many more passengers traveling now than there were last Last year. So we're going to hear about this. I'm, I'm sure there'll be an 8K any minute. So one of the interesting things here is that Gary Kelly, the prior CEO, was a lauded figure, you know, throughout the industry, throughout the business world. He only stepped down, was it last summer, uh, for the new CEO to take over. So as hard as we want to be on the CEO to say, how could you possibly have these horribly antiquated systems in place? 
Does Gary Kelly deserve some uh, or have to shoulder some of the blame here as well? Because it sounds like these are systems that have been in place at this company for literally decades. That is true. And we've heard from unions that have been saying, you know, this is very these systems are very hard on our employees. We're talking flight attendants and pilots. Uh, There have been warnings to those executives that, that we've heard about that weren't heeded. So those employees that have been stranded, some of them sleeping on cots and airports, are very upset about that. Um, again, Bob Jordan is the new CEO, and he took uh, the helm earlier this year. Um, but he's been at the company for a long time. A lot of the top executives there, like with airlines, because it's such a specialized industry, s- tend to stay with the company for a really long time. But they're going to have to take a, a very close look at their systems currently. Oh, there's no what way. To, what to invest in. Of course. So they're facing, they have to compensate people who are waylaid. They're going to have to upgrade their systems. Now, I don't see how they can get around it. Apparently, it was a point of pride that they would sort of say, yeah, we operate on the super low-cost model, and th- that allows us to have, you know, higher uh, earnings, a higher stock price. You know, it's the culture of the company, this kind of, we don't just have to be the whiz-bang latest thing. Well, now that's really come back to haunt them. Absolutely. That's a great point, Kelly. Um, sometimes the cheaper thing ends up being more expensive. And in aviation and in other businesses, it, it seems to always take a crisis to really spur some of these rules, whether it's consumer protection, safety, or, or things of that nature. Um, so it, it does seem to have to come to that point. Like we've seen people stranded all over the country uh, to actually kind of spur some movement there. Do you think we will get new rules from Washington on this now? It is possible. Um, the rules that we have, you know, like we were saying, are, are, are pretty weak at the moment. There are proposals out there, at least to provide more transparency of fees. Um, airlines did get rid of change fees. Southwest never had, uh, hasn't had change fees, and they were kind of ahead of the curve in that. Um, but when airlines were very desperate, they got rid of change fees during uh, the pandemic, and that for most standard economy and up tickets. Um, but we, we could see rules. These things tend to take a really long time. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, we're talking months. It took them years, essentially, with the emotional support animals. Um, but this is this is a big issue. It's a political issue. Yeah. Oh, and, uh, to be back in the days when yes. the ostrich on the plane was the biggest thing we had to worry about with this industry. Uh, here's a quote from the CEO. I do think our growth outstripped the tools needed, he said, for the complexity. This was in November before all this hit. So it's not like they didn't know. They, they knew something was coming. They've been warned by employees. They knew that they had to make these investments. And, and I think this is just going to spur it along. But unfortunately, it's coming coming at the expense of all of these people. It's not just a big delay. This happened during the holidays. Right. It's a very emotional time. People haven't seen their families in a long time. It's a trip that essentially you have to take. No, but it, it, to the point we were making yesterday, you know, it's not like people have that much choice about airlines. You kind of have to fly the one that is where you live. And it reminds me of the sort of these regulations that then require more regulation. I don't know. Can we just open it up? Does it have to be this way, this entire system? Can consumers have more choice? Well, what we're seeing now is potentially even more consolidation with JetBlue trying to acquire Spirit Airlines. True. That's going to be something, you know, what happened here is going to be something that the DOJ is going to take a very close look at when they're looking at that combination. Um, but, yeah, it, it takes sort of these events to kind of think like, oh, there are four airlines that control about 80 percent of the domestic market. Exactly. Southwest is the biggest domestic carrier we have. And p- many people have no choice. They'd love to say I'm never flying it again, but they'll have to. Leslie, thanks. Uh, we appreciate our Leslie Josephs for the latest on Southwest cancellations head over to CNBC.com. Still ahead, Elon Musk telling employees not to be bothered by the stock market craziness, but it might be pretty hard to do. Shares have gone from 403 to 108 this year. Market cap 1.2 trillion in January, now 376 billion. What the slide could mean for the whole EV industry? We've got those implications next.
Tesla springing back today despite a price target cut from one of the most bullish analysts on Wall Street. Morgan Stanley's Adam Jonas cutting his price target to 250 from 330. The shares are at 119. Jonas now acknowledging that 2023 will be a reset year for the EV market as supply starts to outpace demand. Musk himself addressing the stock slide in an email to employees saying, quote, don't be too bothered by the stock market craziness. Long term, I believe very much that Tesla will be the most valuable company on Earth. But one big question lingers. Will Musk actually keep his pledge not to sell any more Tesla shares to finance Twitter? He's sold $23 billion worth of shares already. And now Barron's is reporting Musk has experienced his first margin call for his Twitter loan. So with on Tesla on pace for its worst year ever, high rates putting pressure on the auto space and Senator Manchin now urging the Treasury to pause implementation of the EV tax credit. What does the road ahead look like for the EV industry? Michael Farkas is the CEO of Blank Charging. They have more than 20,000 EV charging stations across the U.S. Michael, welcome. And what do you think is going on with demand? I see it uh, still heavily uh, in favor of, of people looking for vehicles. Um, you don't see too many EVs on, on the uh, on lots of uh, uh, you know car dealers these days, um, and we're seeing just amazing products starting to come out there and trickle out into the marketplace. So we're we're seeing exciting times for the EV market ahead of us. Granted, it's been a tough year for the performance of Blink and Tesla and the EV space as a whole. And do you just attribute that to Fed tightening or are, is it the fact that we are going to see more supply than demand next year? Without a question, it really has to do with market conditions. Um, if you look at the EV industry, the infrastructure side of the business, um, we have a lot of money being thrown at us by governments, not only in the U.S., um, worldwide. That's what's going to drive the demand for charging infrastructure to be deployed. Um, what's impacting the cars right now is high interest rates. It's a very, very big ticket item. People are slower to make that move today until they see where things settle out. But ultimately, um, it is not impacting charging uh, station deployments at this point in time. Although I have to Actually, mention, we're growing by leaps and bounds. Yeah, by leaps and bounds. If, if Mansion or if they rolls this back or if they do pare back this EV incentive, how much would that change your forecast for the year? Um, it, it doesn't much. Um, you know, we, we focus really on level two charging stations that are for um, commercial markets, retail, multifamily, residential, um, fleet business especially. It's, it's much cheaper to operate an EV than it is an internal combustion engine car. And the fleet operators across the country, across the globe, are realizing this. Um, and they drive a tremendous amount of the car purchases. Those cars need charging stations. That's what we do. We supply the charging stations. So whether we have short-term gyrations because of market conditions, inflation, and so on, ultimately, by law, in most of the world, you're going you're gonna to have to have an EV after 2035, 2040, 2045, and 2050 um, globally. So whether there are short-term gyrations, whether it's one EV producer or another EV producer who are the leaders, that doesn't impact blink and charging infrastructure companies because ultimately all of these cars are going to need to be fueled, and that's what we do. Absolutely. When did you see the biggest increase in demand? Was it uh, for EVs? Was it when gasoline prices spiked back in June? Across the board, you saw a lot more interest um, when when gasoline prices spiked. You know, people are looking at this and saying, hey, is it is it a cost perspective? Is it something that's driving EVs? Is the cost of fuel per, per uh, you know as per electricity? Um, the cost to operate an EV is much much cheaper at four dollar gas. You're talking about 10, 12 cents on the dollar to travel that same mileage using electricity versus using gasoline. So, so gasoline would have to come down, you know, to two dollars or below um, for it really to impact the cost of operating the cars on a daily basis. Right. Um, you know, I'm an auto enthusiast. And the reason why I got into this business um, 14 years ago 
is because EVs are just a better product. They drive better. They're much cheaper to maintain. They have a lot less moving parts. You don't need all these fuels in them. And they, they, they positively impact the environment. It's a win-win situation. But when you're an auto enthusiast, you realize that a Tesla Plaid today that's $140,000, you have to spend a couple million dollars for an internal combustion engine car to compete on it on a performance basis. Yeah. The most, uh, the most, the most powerful um, car on the road today um, is an electric car. They drive much better. They're much, they're much lower in, in, in driving them. It's not so much noise. The amount of heat that they, they emit is yeah. much lower. People don't realize how much the, the environment is impacted by the heat of these vehicles. So when you take and add it all together, we're literally going through the dig digitization of the automobile. And, and the end result is EVs. And people are really starting to see the benefit. So it's not only environmental, it's driving capability and, and, and um, literally everything in between. Sure, absolutely. Although it still wouldn't hurt to get maybe a little more price cut on the, on the lowest Tesla. You know, really for the, I take your point about the yes. couple million dollar options, but, you know, for the mass market car. Uh, we'll have to but, leave it there, Michael. No, I appreciate it. Look at it. If you, look, if you look at the lower end, like BMWs or Mercedes compared to the Model 3s, the Teslas are actually cheaper than their internal combustion absolutely. engine counterpart. But the most important thing is Blink is in the infrastructure side. We're, we're, we're yeah. in the, like, the shovels, you know, and, and, and we're there to, to fuel every single car, whether it's a Tesla, a Cadillac, a Hyundai, a Kia. We absolutely. make charging infrastructure for every single type of car. All right, Michael, thanks for joining us today. Michael Farkas with Blink. Taylor Morrison, 40% off the lows this year. We've got more on the home builders after this break. Mortgage rates are up and home prices are down. So what does it all mean for real estate in 2023? Let's ask Diana Olick. Diana? Well, Kelly, it means we're already in a winter housing freeze and it's likely to get worse. There had been a glimmer of hope earlier in the month that the recent drop in mortgage rates might bring some green shoots, but rates have shot back up again in just the past week, now up about 50 basis points than their recent low to 6.54%. Lower rates throughout November didn't help. Two reports showed buyers backed away even further. First, pending home sales, which measure signed contract on existing homes, dropped a wider than expected 4% month month and we're down almost 38 percent year over year to the lowest reading in 21 years when the realtors started this survey, with the exception, of course, of that one month start of the pandemic. Now, another report from Redfin showed sales of luxury homes were 38 percent lower for the three months ending November 30th compared with the same period last year. That's the biggest decline since they started tracking a decade ago. So lower prices are not helping much. Another read this week from S&P Case Schiller showed prices nationally in October fell for the fourth straight month. They were still just over 9% higher than October of last year, but that annual gain has been shrinking very quickly and is now half of what it was in June. So where does that leave us in January? Kind of in a weird spot. There's very little demand from buyers, but also very little supply to entice them back to a slightly less expensive market, Kelly. Exactly. Diana, thank you very much. Diana Olick, that does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 